Welcome to the Equibian Podcast. My name's Karen Milliken, and I'm here all by myself. Today, we're going to have Nathan. <laughs> you can't handle it. So typically, my co-host, Nathan, would be here moderating this podcast with me. But today, we get a special treat of hearing a talk that he did at Watermark's Church Leaders Conference on Imaging God. So if you've been listening with us for a while, about a year ago, I interviewed Nathan on his dissertation work and how people view God and how that affects their spiritual maturity. And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. We've also done a couple podcasts with Dr. Kurt Thompson on the mind. And I think both of those would be really helpful pieces of information to have as you listen to this next talk. And so this was done a few weeks ago at our church leaders conference, and it kind of pulls together all of that information. And we think it's a helpful resource that can be pushed out to y'all. And so we hope that you enjoy. As always, if you have questions, just email us and we would love to engage with you more about this topic. Hope you enjoy. All right. Well, hey, we're going to start a few minutes early because I talked too long. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. So instead of going over, I'm just going to start early and, you know, then maybe we'll end on time. But uh, my name is Nathan and I'll give you a little bit of background on me. That'll be pertinent to what we're about to be talking about. And I would also just encourage you, you're about to get some information that potentially is going to be new for you. Um, it definitely was new for me when I started to dive into this. And so I would just encourage you, this is going to be a session where you're going to need to put your thinking cap on. And if you don't walk out of here with a ton of clarity, and if you walk out of here with more questions than you came in with, that's not a bad thing, okay? We're still here. We're going to have a conversation as long as you want to have a conversation. Well, actually, I have a whole other break that I have to teach uh, right after this, so I got to go back over to the tower. But you can contact me by email, or you can just catch me around, and we can keep talking about it, okay? But... Uh, like I said, my name is Nathan. I serve on the equipping team here. I help lead the equipping ministry. I do apologetics and spiritual disciplines and theology and uh, a podcast called The Equipping Podcast. We interview subject matter experts on issues related to discipleship, theology, and apologetics. So that's The Equipping Podcast. But uh, I got my undergraduate degree in biblical studies in the languages at Washita Baptist University. Shout out. And then I moved down to Dallas to go to Dallas Seminary where I studied, I kept studying the Bible. I studied New Testament and um, a lot more languages, too many. And then I joined the army. So that was this weird left turn where I uh, was an infantry officer with the 4th Infantry Division. I uh, deployed twice to Afghanistan and all that that entails. And then when my wife got pregnant with our oldest, Nate, I decided I'm, I'm done getting at least choosing to be in a spot where I'm getting shot at. So we transitioned out of the army and I've been on staff here at Watermark for eight years. And during that eight years, I got my doctorate at Biola University. And I was sitting in one of my uh, resident seminars in the summer of 2014. And a woman came in to take us through this exercise that only lasted about 20 minutes. And when I walked out of that 20 minute exercise, like my world was wrecked. I was like, what, what kind of weird jujitsu did she just like do on me? And the exercise had to do with how people emotionally relate to God. All of us have a relationship with God and uh, we have that relationship with God through the means that he has created us uh, to have, namely our bodies. 
And we are emotional creatures. And what that exercise did was it filleted me open from an emotional standpoint and exposed a lot of deficiencies that I had in my experiential relationship with God. And that sent me on this journey that's really happened over the last seven years of me diving into neurobiology, me diving into psychoanalysis, um, diving into attachment theory, diving into how people formulate their image of God and what that unique relationship that we have with our image of God and how that shapes how we're formed and how we should be discipled. And so that's what we're going to talk about right now. Okay, so this session is Imaging God, How Our View of God Affects Our Discipleship and Spiritual Formation. So everybody's heard this quote, right? A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You guys heard this before, right? All right, now, C.S. Lewis had a little different take on this, all right? He said, uh, no, how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it's related to how he thinks of us, which I think is a good point. All right, we should weigh that. What I want to ask today, and not that I'm putting myself into the company of A.W. Tozier and C.S. Lewis, but, but what I want to ask us today is one of the most important things about us is what we experience and what we feel when we think about or relate to God. That is one of the most important things about you. And I guarantee you, there's probably, uh, I don't know, maybe 200 people in here. There are 200 different variations of God sitting in this room. And we're all worshiping the same God. Now you're like, what the heck did you just say, right? That's what we're going to unpack. I want to start, though, with this idea that we're storied creatures, okay? Not only do we have our own individual narratives that have been formed over time, they're formed from our first conscious experiences. In fact, there's a lot of research out there that says that a lot of our narratives are formed even pre-consciously because you're not born into a vacuum. You are born into a story that's already been ongoing. And so you're born into a story that's storying you a certain way. And you're formed in that narrative as you grow and have experiences with the objects that you interact with. But not only do you have your own individual narrative, your individual narrative is part of a collective of a human narrative. And individual narratives are bumping up against each other and influencing one another. Just read the news for a day and you'll see all of the different types of narratives that are going on simultaneously and they're competing with one another for the loudest voice in the cultural narrative. And so when we have thoughts, not only is it an individual thought based on our experiences of how we were raised, the type of environment we were raised in, the experiences that we've had, both positive and negative, not only is it that, but also those stories are being influenced by all of the other narratives that are playing out around us. Okay. So everybody can say, oh, well, I see this, or I do this, or I believe this. And you need to ask the question, what do you mean by that? Because it is almost certainly not the same thing. And so in order for us to start and, and talk about, okay, how does this work? We've got to talk about the flow of information. So we're going to dive, I'm going to give you a little crash course in neurobiology. 
hey, just, I am not a neurobiologist, okay? I am a, a two-bit biblical theologian who's trying to figure this out, all right? But I've read a bunch of people who are, and this is what they say. A lot of times when we think about the brain, we just think about the, the gray matter inside of our skull, right? But that's too narrow. When we think about our brain, we need to think about our entire nervous system because you are constantly receiving information. Even if you don't know it, you're constantly receiving information. It's like uh, sometimes you have that like spidey sense, you know, when somebody like walks up behind you and you know somebody's behind me, but you can't see them. You may not even be able to hear them. You just know it. You know what I'm saying? We, we have these sensory type things that are going on in us all of the time and we're receiving information. And as that information is grabbed by our nervous system, it flows up the spine into our brainstem. And in the brainstem, which is called the reptilian brain, this is where all of that raw data, like totally unfiltered, it's just raw data comes up through the brainstem, which includes the cerebellum, the back part of your brain. And a lot of our just in, our animal instincts, which is why it's called the reptilian brain, a lot of our animal instincts are controlled by the brainstem. Okay, but it doesn't just it doesn't stay there. As it passes through the brainstem, it enters into the limbic system, which is kind of like if you have the two hemispheres of the brain, there's like this center part in the very center of it, and that's called the limbic system. And as the information goes up through the brainstem into the limbic system, one of two primary things, a bunch of stuff is happening, but one of two primary things happens. Either one, it triggers your hippocampus. And your hippocampus is this little bitty thing inside your brain. And uh, the best thing I've heard it described as is a puzzle piece assembler. It takes all of the information that you're receiving at once and it starts to integrate them together into something that is ultimately going to be able to make sense. It's putting all the raw data and it's putting all the pieces together, right? When your brain is relaxed, your hippocampus is functioning properly. I mean, unless you have some sort of disease, right? But as long as you're relaxed, then your hippocampus is churning and it's putting the pieces together. It's doing it right now, right? Um, so yay, our hippocampus is, right? <laughs> you probably didn't think you were gonna hear that at this conference, but I just said it, all right? Secondly, if you're in a stressed environment or if there's trauma or if there's something that is causing you to tense up, then that naturally is going to inhibit your hippocampal activity and it's going to elevate your amygdala. Now the amygdala is the gland that literally is the fight, flight, freeze, response, trigger. It's the thing that uh, is the danger, 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 and do I need to fight right now or freeze right now or run right now? And when the amygdala is firing, it inhibits hippocampal activity. So all the raw data that's coming up through the spinal cord and the brainstem gets stuck in the limbic system if the hippocampus is not functioning properly. Are y'all tracking with me? All right, sweet. Awesome. Neurobiology 101. Now, it doesn't stop there. If it's integrated in, by the hippocampus into a cohesive, if the data is put together, then it ultimately passes into the neocortex. Now, the neocortex is made up of two different hemispheres. And you guys have probably heard this before. You have the, the right hemisphere, which I know y'all are looking at that. It's like, well, that's on the left, but this is the brain that's looking at you, right? So, uh, so you have the right hemisphere, which is all like implicit processing. While it can be conscious, 
A lot of it is pre-conscious or subconscious. This is the creative side. This is the holistic side. Uh, This is where things are implicit. They're happening even though you're not necessarily aware that they're happening, right? And if, again, it's uninhibited, then it's going to pass from the right hemisphere into the left hemisphere where you have logical, linear, linguistic, literal This is the explicit processing part of your brain where now the information that's... And all this is happening in like a nanosecond, right? But all of this information is coming up through the brainstem and the limbic system, through the right part of the brain, into the left part of the brain, and then it sits up here in in what's called your prefrontal cortex. It's literally right behind your little forehead here, right? And in your prefrontal cortex, you are able to raise this data, this data that now you're consciously aware of, and you're able to play with it. You're able to go, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what to do with that. Do I push that away? Do I pull that in? Do I dissect it? Do I look at it? Do I laugh at it? Am I sad about it? Like Now you're consciously aware of the information that's flowing. Okay? This is just straight up neurobiology, okay? Now, a lot of times, people will be like, well, can we make it go another way? And the answer is no. (laughs) This is how your brain functions. You sense stuff. It goes up through your spinal cord, through your brainstem, into your pre-conscious, subconscious, implicit memory, which is crazy, because you literally have a memory bank that's full of memories that you're not aware of. Isn't that crazy? So you have this thing, and then as it's raised through the hippocampus to the level of awareness, and it passes through your emotional brain into your logical brain, then you're able to start to play with it. Information cannot flow from start to finish the other way. You're not consciously aware of something, and then it becomes an emotional response, and then it becomes just a a raw instinct. This is literally the way that your brain was designed by God. Okay, so that's neurobiology. Now it's time to psych out. All right. (laughs) So when somebody is born, then you're already like even right now. My wife is pregnant with our fourth uh, child, baby Joy. Yeah. So baby Joy is going to be here in September, Lord willing. And right now, even as she is forming in the womb, she is already storing implicit memory. She's already pulling in raw data through her nervous system, which is functioning. Now, when a baby is born, then a baby comes out and the eyesight isn't great for a minute, but then it's okay. And then they look and they're like, they're like, oh, sweet. It's Aaron. Like you see somebody. And you don't even necessarily know, a baby doesn't know, like, huh, what is that? They're constantly mapping their environment, which is why a baby is constantly moving and touching stuff and putting in his mouth and feeling things and looking at things. And you're, they're mapping their world. All of us have done this. All of us have. And what happens is, is that these objects that we are interacting with from the baby's standpoint, are not necessarily independent of the baby. So when the baby goes, wah, 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 and all of a sudden a boob appears, from the baby's perspective, the baby created that. Do you see what I'm saying? And so they're like, oh, sweet. Like, I'm omnipotent. 
Like I can just do something and it appears because it doesn't have a category for not me. Everything is just me. You tracking? And so as the baby is mapping this out, what the baby needs in order to move into reality out of its category of just me, what it needs is some sort of transitional object. And so that's why we give them pacifiers to go here. The pacifier is an object that represents the breast, but is not the breast. And so then the baby is going, oh, I'm still creating this thing, but wait a minute, this is not me. And whoa, hang on, if that's not me, maybe that's not me either. And so the baby moves from a real sense of omnipotence to the point where it realizes that it it is living in a world of objects that are not me. And now it's representing these objects psychologically, internally, through a mental schema or a model that's created by the mind. So Tyler, you were saying, hey, before Tyler, right? All right, come on up here, Tyler. Tyler's going to volunteer. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Love it. All right, this is Tyler Wisner. He's a, he's a watermark kid. Yeah. Now he's at Harris Creek. Yeah. What in the world? But I mean, you're Baylor, right? Uh, or you're just at Harris Creek? I'm just at Harris Creek. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. All right, yeah. trader. Um, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so right now, I have a mental representation of Tyler. And my mental representation of Tyler is based on the lens that I have that's been formed in a bunch of different ways, in a bunch of different environments, right? And also, I actually, like, through my optical nerve and my eyes and my brain, actually see that there's an object here, and this object is male, and this object calls itself Tyler. And so I'm like, hey, Tyler, what's up? Now, is my representation of Tyler Tyler? No, it's not. It's just my representation of him. And it changes, and I can play with it. I can be like, hey, stay where you are. I can be like, what's up, Tyler? Oh, dude, this is a whole other, like, now I see Tyler in a whole new light. And then it's like, oh, snap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, sweet. And then I can come down here and, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. See, I see, right? I'm seeing my representation of Tyler is shifting and changing depending on the perspective I'm looking at, depending on my position, depending on all of these things. Okay, now, right now, my object representation of Tyler is a pleasant one, not least of which doesn't have anything to do with him. You want to know why it's, it's pleasant right now? Because his dad was on staff with me for a long time, and I know his dad. That doesn't have anything to do with Tyler. That has to do with my experience of Tyler's dad. That shapes the way I am going to relate to the object of Tyler in my brain. Does that make sense? Now, if Tyler's dad was a friggin' serial killer who axed my wife, then that's going to totally change the way that I'm relating to Tyler. I am now, because my amygdala is going to be firing and my experience, my lens is going to be tainted with that, then now all of a sudden I'm going to be like, dude, I, this has changed our dynamic. Are you tracking with me? All right, y'all give it up for Tyler. <clears throat> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So an object representation is an internal mental schema or an internal construct that's created out of our lens in order to relate to the objects that we find. And they reflect reality 
in some ways that are accurate. Like I would say that I have an accurate view of Tyler, but my representation of Tyler is not Tyler, and it's definitely not complete Tyler. That's object representation. We do that with every single object in our lives. We even do it with a daggum computer. How many of y'all have ever been like, and like throw the computer out the window? You are relating to an object because it's frustrating you at the moment. Your representation of that object is that it's the spawn of Satan that just shuts down at the most inopportune moments. And so you're like, that's your representation of a computer. Now, in this way, we both find an object, which is actual real Tyler. He came up here and I put my arm around him. And so um, I found him, but I simultaneously was creating him in my mind. There is real Tyler. And then there is the internal mental schema that is a representation of Tyler that's unique to me. That's object representation. We create the objects we find. Isn't that fascinating? Look, if that's not like, then I don't, you're asleep. I don't know. Or, or we'll just, maybe we hang out more later. All right. How we relate to our objects is called object relations. Again, like I said, my relation to Tyler at the moment was a pleasant one because I know his dad. And I, when he said, when he introduced himself and I'm, hey, I'm Tyler Wisner. I was like, oh, Wisner. Oh, yeah, you look exactly like your dad. I love your dad. You know, and now we're best friends. And those types of relations, because I have a secure relationship with his dad, then my relationship with Tyler has started from a standpoint of security. Now, broadly speaking, object relations can fall into two different categories. One of them is secure, where you have an environment where the primary object is responding to your cues. They see you. They not only respond to you, but they respond to you positively they mirror you in a lot of ways. This is why when you're holding a baby and the baby's looking at you and does this, what do you do? You mirror it. Why do we do that? Because it's communicating to the baby that you see it, that it's powerful, that it has agency. Those are secure environments where the fundamental questions of children are, am I seen? Am I known? Am I accepted? Am I loved? And when the answer to those questions is good enough, then that creates a secure environment. And the hippocampus runs like it's basically supposed to. Now, there is another category that's called insecure. And the insecure attachment patterns that happen are when a child is neglected, or when a child is abused, or when a child is ignored, when a child's basic needs are maybe met, from a physical standpoint, but not met from an emotional or a psychological standpoint. And even when a physical need is met, if the child is fed but ignored, the trauma that happens is significant. And what happens is the child begins to relate to its objects in its life through coping mechanisms. And the coping mechanisms typically fall into three different categories. The first one is insecure, anxious, okay? The child is just gonna be kind of like on alert, like uh, this environment is not secure. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm going to relate as if, uh, hang on. And you're just gonna see the anxious nature of the child's response to an insecure environment. The second one is avoidant. 
the child's response to not being seen is to go, hey, I need to protect myself. And so I'm going to push my attachment object away from me because they're insecure. I don't want to relate to that object. I'll push it far enough away where I can stay in a spot where attachment is possible. But because the object has shown itself to be insecure, I'm going to avoid it. And then the third one and the really tragic one is insecure disorganized. And this is where the actual object, the seminal figure, the seminal object in the child's life is actually dangerous. The person the child is looking to with all of its fundamental questions to be answered is not only negatively answering it, but actually becomes a danger to the child, either physically or sexually or emotionally. There's abuse that happens here. Now, (laughs) welcome to the world of neurobiology and object representation. There is a unique representation in the inner world of individual psychology. Each of us forms the most unique and critical object representation. It is one we both create and also find. In the context of our childhood environments and early formative experiences, Each of us heard of an unseen person who created the world and rules over it. Every one of us assigned the word God to this unseen object and began a lifelong journey of interacting with our own personal God representation. Now, how we relate to that specific representation is essential in shaping who we are and what we become. There are two major ingredients in a God representation. So I'm not talking about Tyler anymore, no offense. Now I'm talking about God. And the two major ingredients, the first one is a God concept. Now, the God concept is driven by your left brain. It's explicit, it's conscious, it's your intellectual belief about God. Your God concept is the thing that you're aware of. It's the thing that allows you to get an A on a theology exam. What is the right answer? What does the Bible say about this? That's your God concept. You can play with it in your prefrontal cortex. However, your God concept had to travel through an enormous amount of checkpoints to get to where it could become explicit. And that's the second part, which is called your God image. Your God image is your pre-conscious implicit, subconscious, emotional, holistic, reflexive interaction with this unique representation that we call God. It's the part of you that you know, like you can sense that something is there, but you're not really sure where it came from or what to do with it. But you can feel the tension of it when in various seasons of your life, somebody says, hey, do you believe that God is love? And the answer in your left brain conscious explicit God concept is yes. Why do we say that? Because it's the right answer. It's 1 John 4, 8. God is love. We can chapter and verse it. We got a proof text, right? But then the tension is automatically created in your mind and in your life because you definitely know there are times when you say that, but that's anything but your experience, you don't experience the love of God. 
You wake up in the middle of the night and go, I don't know. Or you walk around insecurely, wondering if God really does love you. Or you think, uh, maybe God loves me, but he kind of has to because he's God. I'm not really sure that he likes me, though. God help us. This is what it looks like. Your concept is rational, left hemispheric, conscious, reflective, slow, controlled, analytic. You play with it. You will use your God concept to construct a deity in your mind that allows you to live with the dysfunction of your God image. You will cover it and hide from it using your God concept. But your God image is emotional, experiential, primarily right hemispheric, limbic system, unconscious, pre-conscious, reflexive, fast, automatic, stimulus-driven, holistic, sub-symbolic, non-verbal. And it looks like this, like a baby sees its parents and has an object. It can put a name and experiences with these objects and begins to form a type of attachment to these objects. And then as the child grows, then it begins to realize, oh, everybody is talking about this unseen object and everybody's calling it God. And we do ritual around it and we do family stuff around it. And we go to this place where everybody talks about God. And and so the child begins to construct out of the lens of its attachment environment with its parents, a relationship to their God representation. And so while the God representation grows, what's fascinating about it is when the God concept conflicts with the God image, which one of those two do you think wins out every time? God image does every single time. Why is that? Because that's the way that information flows in your brain. In your limbic system, you got a bunch of stuck data in there because through insecure attachments to people, it hasn't been able to be integrated into a cohesive story that then can go into your left brain and and to something that actually makes sense. It's stuck there. And you're not even consciously aware of it a lot of times. You just know that something is off. So which God are we talking about? (laughs) Which is a great question. Look, understanding the changing nature of a God representation, that is an essential aspect of discipleship and spiritual formation. It is not enough to teach a set of propositions about God or lead people through a series of focused disciplines And you definitely can't assume that any given God representation is healthy enough not to sabotage the efforts to shepherd people along the way. Two people chatting about God over a cup of coffee are almost certainly not talking about the same God, even though they use similar terminology and they cognitively affirm the same doctrines. If we are to assume anything in a discipleship relationship, it is that no two God representations are the same. There are as many shapes for this creature of ours as there are human beings. And guess what, guys? The vast majority of discipleship methodology appeals to what? Our God concept. And we just assume, hey, if I can just give you this information, you'll change. And wrong. Like, not just wrong, big time wrong. 
The church is limping along because we're so doctrinally centric and we're so information centric that we're pushing this on all these people, but they don't know that they're loved by God. That's not their experience. And you can tell them all day long, but they will not believe you until they earn a secure attachment with their object representation. That is a vehicle that ushers them into the actual reality who is God. And the actual reality who is God is love. It's so crazy. He loves us. And anything that would steal you away from the love of God is a lie. So you're like, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens through what Austin Farrar calls a dialectic of images. All right, you're like, what the heck is that? So think of it like this. There is an actual objective reality who is God, okay? His name is Yahweh. His son is Jesus. And the unity that binds the father and the son is also a person. It's called the Holy Spirit. Praise him, right? There is an actual objective reality who is God. Just like there is an actual Tyler Wisner. There is an actual objective who is God. Now, our representations of that God are partially true, but in the earlier stages, and and maybe even all throughout our stages, have a lot of baggage with them. And so what the Holy Spirit does is you're oriented to your God image, but then the Holy Spirit will go, eh, I'm going to blow that up. It's going to drop like a JDAM on that 500-pound laser-guided bomb. You're like, boom, and it's going to blow it up, and that's going to cause a significant amount of disorientation. Because most people believe, can't state this, emphasize this enough. Most people believe that their representation of God is God. Eh, Wrong, (laughs) right? It's not. It most certainly is not. And so the Holy Spirit is going to blow that up and it's going to be like, hey, look at God from this side. And you'd be like, whoa, he's way bigger than I thought he was. That's disorienting. And then, but then you settle into that and you're like, oh, yeah, this is cool. And then the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, we're not there yet. Boom. You're going to blow it up again, right? Through disorientation. And you're going to be like, oh, and he's going to like, look at it over here. And you're like, whoa, it's even bigger than I thought. And then you're going to be reoriented toward deeper reality, more love. And then boom. And then that, that happens like, Throughout the entire spiritual life, through this cycle of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, where the dialectic is, is that the ultimate reality is pulling on your representation to bring it up into conformity with what is actually real. And there's an exchange there where the person is going, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you because the God image that they have has leaked over from other attachment relationships that were insecure. Farrar says this, the promise of God dealing with us through grace can be set before us in nothing but images, for we have not yet experienced the reality. (laughs) When we proceed to live the promises out, the images are crucified by the reality. Slowly and progressively, never completely, and not always without pain. Yet the reality is better than the images. 
Jesus Christ clothed himself in all the images of messianic promise and in living them out, he crucified them. But the crucified reality is better than the figures of prophecy. This is very God and life eternal, whereby the children of God are delivered from idols. What happens when this person's God representation down at the bottom, when that person is absolutely and totally convinced that their representation is God, it calcifies, it hardens, it becomes unchangeable, it becomes an idol. And your representation of God, which is incomplete, that you're so convinced is God, becomes the idol that you worship. And God is not okay with that. Because he is not okay with anything less than his children being saturated in and driven by the love of God. Esther Meek has a great illustration. She wrote a book called Loving to Know. It's a a book on epistemology. I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. But she uses a cat illustration. And she's like, look, when you're learning to read, you look at the Latin alphabet, and you're like, oh, C-A-T. Like right now, Miles, my five-year-old, he's learning to read. He's looking at the symbol. And he's looking at it going, uh, what is that? He's focusing on the symbol. He's looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And he's like, see, maybe that's a k-k-k. I know that's an A, all right, cat. Oh, cat! There's that eureka moment. There's that moment when he stops looking at the characters, and now instead of looking at the characters, he looks from them to an actual cat. So now when you read, you don't even recognize the letters on the page. You've gotten so good at reading that as you read, you're not looking at the letters. You're imaging the representation of the letters in your mind. And what I have become crazy convinced of, well, I'm crazy anyway, okay? But, but uh, what I've become crazy convinced of is that our discipleship methodologies are so focused on people recognizing a character that we've never taught them to look from the character to the reality. Now, you read so well, you may be tempted to say that you hardly see the words on the page, but those marks are there. They must be there for you to be reading. You have shifted your manner of relating to them. You now rely on them rather than focus on them. The same thing happens with God. Prior to substantive transformation, the focus of discipleship is commonly a looking at, a one-dimensional theological map. Do you know this information? Can you recite this stuff? Do you have your memory verse? Do you know which books of the Bible? What's in the Old? What's in the New Testament? We love God. We're devoted to him. But God for us is more often not a set of presuppositional statements to be affirmed, sought after in the Christian scriptures, fought for in culture. And yet a critical shift begins to occur. We stop looking to our doctrines and calling them God. We begin to look from our subsidiary doctrines to God. To God himself. 
We stop asking, do you believe what I believe? And we start asking the question, do you see who I see? Look at the beauty of Christ. Fix your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Who through the joy before him endured the cross. He scorned its shame. Why? Because he loves us. Because he knows that he's going to draw us back into the love of God. That our insecure attachment will be healed by the loving and gentle presence of the Holy Spirit who will bring us back into a substantive and loving, not just intellectual belief about the love of God, but an ongoing experience of the love of God. And when you ongoing on a moment by moment basis experience the love of God, you will change. Why does this matter? Well, depending on the level of secure or insecure attachment environment that all of us have grown up and developed in, a person's God representation is a significant barrier to any substantive encounter with God. When the person hears the word God and their experience is, oh, he's out to get me, he's after me. Oh no, I haven't performed enough for him. Maybe he's not gonna bless what I'm doing. Okay, what do I need to do? God, it's this very transactional relationship. And what I'm proposing to you is, that's not what God is like. That's your dad. That's your mom. That's your coach. That's your seminal attachment figure that's leaked over into your belief about God. That's not what God is like. Or we might feel like, oh, man, I've got to be exactly right about everything. Maybe what you hear in your mind is, is a condemning voice when you got an A, but what you heard from your dad was, why didn't you get an A+. Plus? Or a coach, you know, you make a play, but ah, it could have been better. And there's this condemning that's leaked into our God image from other sources. And it's coloring what you actually experience about God. Or we use our God representation to keep God at bay. This is dangerous kind, right? Where... We will use our belief about God to protect ourselves from what we believe God to be. It gets totally weird and crazy. I'm going to use God to protect myself from God. Again, in a transactional relationship, I'm going to do these things so that I obligate you, God. You have to do this for me because I've been faithful to you. But that's not what God is like. Or through time, experience, earned secure attachment where we can begin to surrender our images. And through experience, not only believe God to be love, but as you surrender your image of God to the objective reality who is God, what you are met with every single Time is love. And when you do that, it gets easier as you go because you know, I can give this to God. I trust him. He loves me. Oh, he came through on that. I may not understand it always, but 
I can trust him. And then another disorientation. I can give that. I, I, where, where your knee jerk is, come to me. Everybody who's weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. And you're like, you're like, yeah. Peaceful waters are over there. I don't just know that. I experience that. And the more you do that, the easier it gets. So that spiritual maturity is such a secure environment with the objective reality who is God through a transformed God image of him that the vehicle of our representation is more and more in line with the actual objective reality who is God. And when that happens, then the thing that pours out of you naturally is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can get to a point in the spiritual life where it would be hard for those things not to come out of you. Like you think about Jesus in the garden. What would have actually been hard for Jesus in the garden? It would have been hard for Jesus not to trust his father. So when we're looking at and thinking about discipleship methodologies in our churches, in our ministry contexts, you have to consider this. If you don't, what could be happening is that you're giving people tools and resources that are further habituating their disoriented and dysfunctional image of God. Now, not against Bible reading and Bible memorization. And those things are important, right? But they're important in the context of cultivating an environment of love. I see you. I love you. You're powerful. You have agency. And creating a space where all of that subconscious junk brought about in all of their woundedness can be brought to the surface, raised to the level of awareness, and spoken into. And that's how people heal. It's called integration. I have so many more thoughts about this. I wrote an entire dissertation on it. So if you want it, let me know. I'll send it to you, all right? But I do want to leave some time for questions. So what do you got? So bottom shelf cookie guy. Yeah. How? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we have to get really good at listening to people's stories. It goes back to the first slides. Like we are storied creatures. And I think if you listen closely enough to people's stories, the language they use, how they tell the story, somebody who has an insecure attachment relationship with their God image will talk about God in incoherent terms. It doesn't actually fit a cohesive narrative there are gaps, and the reason that gaps are there is because not all of the information has been integrated by the hippocampus to make it into conscious awareness. So their stories are fragmented. You also can see evidences of insecurity through, obviously, the way they talk about God, the language they use around God, the emotional reactions they have when you bring certain subjects up. And so we have to pay attention. The days of, hopefully anyway, the days of all right, sit down. I'm just going to give you information are over. And so it's complex. I actually have developed an assessment that takes people through a very intentional process that gets at exposing their image of God. And uh, I've taken about 50 people here at Watermark. Some of them are in the room. 
I've taken about 50 of them through that assessment, and the fruit that it's yielded is uh, spectacular, way beyond what I ever thought it would be. So we can talk more about that. The problem is, is you're like, well, well then mass produce it and get it out to everybody. But that's not how it works. If you want gold, you got to go dig for it. And the problem is when you try to assess this with people, you ask them questions about God. Well, what are you getting at? You're getting at their God concept. And their God concept is going to cover for and hide their God image at all costs. So I've become almost a total skeptic of, of any kind of spiritual assessment that just requires somebody to respond on a sheet of paper. Because they're straight up lying to you, at least in some way, right? I mean, you're probably going to get some good information out of it, but most of it's going to be unreliable. Because of this, you have to design the assessment in such a way that people are, are at their truest when they're surprised. So you have to come at them from the side. It's, it sounds bad, but that's how you got to do it. Where like, whoa, you know, and then all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute. Oh, wait, I haven't seen that before. And you're like, exactly. So let's talk more about it. But the main thing I would encourage you guys to do is be really good at listening to stories. Yeah, I think you had your hand and then brother and then uh, then everybody. What's your name? Bill. Bill, what's up, man? A very open-ended question that Cole tells on the one that was just asked. Yeah, it's good. How do you deal with an agnostic? Yeah. (laughs) So George Buttrick, y'all ever heard of George Buttrick? George Buttrick was the chaplain at Harvard University in the 50s in the wake of kind of a post-enlightenment rationalism and liberalism that started to inculcate the, the academy, George Buttrick is sitting here at this now secular academy, even though it started, you know, in religious. And he's having these students come by, and they're literally telling him, I don't believe in your God, or something like that. And George literally, this is the greatest response, right? He goes, well, come on into my office, and let's talk about the God you don't believe in. The reality of it is, every single person on the planet has a God representation, An atheist or an agnostic is just someone who has not been able to psychically accept the image that they have of that deity. I mean, look at all of the atheists that are out there. All of them have in some way, shape, or form a wounded God image that they cannot, they literally cannot psychically accept it. And it's our job to talk to them about their deity they can't accept so that we can help steward them into the love of God. And I promise you, I mean, as, as soon as people see who God is, they, you know, this is where, you know, the, the idea of irresistible grace comes in, right? I mean, it's the, the beauty of Christ, the, the, the true reality, love itself. So that's what I would say. What's happening? Jason is my name. What's and up, uh, one, the one fourth nerd in me was like geeking out. The stuff is that's what I'm talking stuff. about, bro. The uh, the disciple and make me just affirmation. I met one of the brothers in your group, man. There you go. There's and I yeah. said something, and he was uh, he corrected one of my thought patterns. <laughs> so it's good, good stuff. Good stuff all the That's way around. Awesome, man. Yeah. My question is, as a guy who has six kids, I'm very curious to know. Yeah. How do you? How, just the, yeah, you know yeah, where I'm yeah. going. <laughs> That's because the 50 people I've taken through it are all like, how do I not jack my kid up? Right. right. Well, I mean, the, obviously, <laughs> we jack them up anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Exactly. So, right. yeah. yeah, so especially when you have a half a dozen of them. Come, come on, bro. somebody. Come on. Yeah. How, like, how to best set them up? You know the question I'm asking yeah. that I can't even ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Man, go ahead. It's critical that you create an environment where when you mess up or your wife mess up or, or anybody messes up. So woundedness happens, period. You can't avoid it, right? What allows the information to integrate 
into where it's supposed to be is that reconciliation. So for me and my kids, I ask forgiveness for my kids all the time. I'm like, hey, dude, daddy messed up. My tone was harsh. I should not have done that. Hey, Jesus doesn't want me to do that. Jesus wants better for me. Will you please forgive me? And you guys know kids. Before I even stop asking the question, they're already wrapped around my neck, you know, because there's that innate desire to attach. And so when the attachment is reconciled, then their brain starts functioning again really well. And I think that creating an environment where there is ownership and value and agency and I see you and I love you and I look, People who go to church around here by this time have known when I say anything, it's typically about the love of God. Why is that? Because we've been so formed to believe that God doesn't love us. You cannot say this enough. And and I know, by the way, it's the heart of the gospel. So for whatever reason, the love of God has been relegated to another just moral attribute of him. That's demonic. Because now it's like, oh, well, he's good. Yeah, okay, and also love. No, love is the center. That's ontological category of God. God is love. There's a predicate to that. God is love. This goes into the Greek grammar, right? If you look at it grammatically from Greek, the way it's structured in Greek is that's ontological category. This is essence of who God is. And for whatever reason, we elevate sovereignty or we elevate uh, these other attributes of God over and above love. And in so doing, we relegate love down to just an afterthought. But if we speak with the tongue of men and angels, but if we don't have love, we have nothing. We have got to be people who are cultivating environments of love. Now, I'm not talking about love the way culture defines it. That's a nonsensical concept. I'm talking about pursuing the greatest good for every individual as far as it's able to be attained and creating environments where we're cultivating people in love. And that starts in the home. So anyway, all right, let's do one more and then I'm going to pass out. Hi there. My name is Nick. I work with Our Calling. It's a homeless ministry. Awesome, dude. Hey, uh, love you guys. Hey man, thank you for your service. I, I appreciate that. So I work with people who are severely traumatized and sometimes they don't have any faith background by people, yep. or sometimes they're abused by people who claim to be totally. preachers. Totally. And so it's not just a conceptual, uh, the trauma is, is so deep. It goes yep. into the soul, but then it, it weaves itself in very, very deeply like into your body. That's right. And so we have lots of resources where we send people to, uh, to get that, you know, to get their body taken care of. But the difficulty is with what you just talked about, if they go and get help, then that's going to distort their view of the God image yep. because that's going to say, well, real healing. Like I'm, I still believe in God, mm-hmm. but if I really want to get help, I need to go see someone who knows a lot about secular science. Yep. Yep. And so they can keep that, you know, their God concept, but it's going to distort their God image. Yeah, so totally. how would you just advise like for so those of us who work with people, anyone who's been severely traumatized yep, yep. like that. Uh, Look, I would, I would say this. That. I mean, all truth is God's truth. And if they can get help from a secular psychologist that's going to help them move through some trauma, that's great. What the church needs to be there for is to help them connect the dots to ultimately, while this may expose some trauma, the answer to your trauma is Jesus. 
And that's how we come around them, walk with them through that. That's where the community of God is the community of God. We walk with people through their trauma, reinforcing the gospel as their wounded God images surface. And that's where we have to be there. Really, all this is, is like we're reparenting people. And that's what discipleship is. And that's what Jesus is doing with us. And so I think we, we lean into our own story, into our own disorientation. When we meet with somebody who is severely traumatized, we can relate to them through our own story without trying to one-for-one one, like identify with them, let them be differentiated enough for it to still be their trauma, but also to walk with them in a way that's, that empathizes and ultimately connects them through Christ to the love of God. That's always the answer every single time. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us because, dadgummit, we need it. We are not smart enough, nor do we know enough, nor are we powerful enough. We don't know and we can't do, but you know and you can do. So we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you like it, tell your friends. If you want more of me on the podcast, email Nathan and tell him to let me talk more. Or Karen, we could just have that conversation. Listen, I need it from the outside. <laughs> I need support. But rate us on the places that you rate us. And if you have questions, email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. You yeah. can also text Nathan's personal number. Mm-hmm. At one, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six, seven. Bye. Peace. Peace.